Amen. Well, let's come to him, shall we? I wonder if you would turn back to John's Gospel with me, page 890 in the Visitor's Bibles. And this week we've reached verses 19 to 29 of chapter 5, but let's just read the last few verses that we looked at last week to remind ourselves what's happened. I'll take up the story again from chapter 5, verse 16. And this, that is Jesus' miraculous healing of the invalid by the pool, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, so I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he's given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Well, do keep that open in front of you. I have a love-hate relationship with board games. One of the great joys of your kids growing older is that they want to spend hours together as a family conquering a new world or escaping a sinking island or monopolizing the London property market. And those can be some of the best hours, but they can also be excruciating because not every Hunt Taylor is very good at losing. And sometimes playing a board game can be three hours of waiting for the inevitable. 
simply because the board was set in a certain way. Right from the start, there is one child who landed on Mayfair or who got all of Catan's resources. And so the underlying structure of the game, how things were set up before you even began, is going to shape every moment. While John chapter 5 takes us deeper than almost any passage of the Bible into the underlying structure of all reality, into mysteries of God the Trinity that have stretched hearts and minds from Augustine to Calvin to Carson, and in particular, into the mystery of what makes God the Father the Father and what makes God the Son the Son, what we call the eternal generation of God the Son. Nowhere else does the Bible tiptoe closer to that subject of his being begotten before time, before all worlds, than John does here. And yet he does it not simply to tell us interesting things about Jesus. He does it because God wants to offer us Jesus, each one of us here this morning. That underlying structure of all reality is going to profoundly shape the way things are today and the way they will be when history comes to an end. Now, Jesus has just said and done something hugely provocative. By his sheer sovereign grace, he picked one invalid man out of a whole tragic mass of people, a man who didn't seem hugely interested in him, a man whose entire lifetime to that point had been spent in despair. And miraculously, Jesus gave him that life back, his physical life at least. And then when he was attacked for doing that on the Jewish Sabbath, the day of rest, he justified himself, verse 17, by pointing out that God is working to give and sustain life every moment of every day. And what God the Father does, he does also. Implication, I am God the Son, his absolute equal. And that claim to be equal with God, verse 18, is the one that ultimately cost him his life. Now, if Jesus hadn't offered evidence, then I would suggest a human being claiming to be God's equal should be gently led away to some sort of very secure institution in the care of a firm but friendly nurse. The problem here is that nobody disputes the evidence. It's the evidence they've all seen. It's the evidence they're so angry about. Jesus has just worked a miracle in front of them all that is very God-like indeed. And he's been making God-like judgment calls with a God-like authority, which puts their rejection of his claim on far more shaky ground, doesn't it? And yet in his kindness, even then, Jesus doesn't simply drop the truth bomb and turn his back. It's an astonishing claim he's just made to be Yahweh incarnate, God in the flesh, a claim that goes against everything these people around him thought they knew about the one and only God. And so it needs some unpacking, doesn't it? 
everything Jesus says then today is about allowing these people who are currently seething with anger and scheming his death to climb down from their horses and receive the one they're rejecting. What one thing is true today that was true before all worlds and before all time? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 20, there is a father who exists in eternal, loving communion with a son who shares everything with his son, his whole undivided being, all that he wills and all that he does. That is the underlying structure of all reality, a communion of love. Now, later, John will flesh it out more. There is a spirit in this relationship of love as well, but we have little brains, don't we? And for now, it's the sun people want to destroy. And so if that is the basic architecture of the reality we all live in, a father and son perfectly at one, how will that shape our experience of life in this creation today? Well, Jesus makes three headline statements in this passage, each very solemn. They each begin with that truly, truly that he likes to use when eternity hangs on what he's saying. And it's the central truly, truly statements that tells us what this all means for us right now. This is the reason for his sermon. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. If reality is the way it is, if underlying everything else, God is this God of Trinitarian love, then we share in that God's life and joy through the Son he is speaking to us. The voice of the Father is the Son. And he's speaking that voice, holding out that Son right now because he wants to draw us into that communion to let us out of this tragic estate of sin and death and to bring us into the warmth and life at the heart of everything. Yes, there are deep truths in this passage to stretch our minds over what kind of son he is, but we wrestle with all these truths for the sake of our hearts so that we can honor Jesus and listen to Jesus and marvel at Jesus through whom God is speaking life to us right now. Firstly then, from verses 19 to 23, honor Jesus because all that he is and all that he does, the Father has loved from eternity past. And the key here, and I think throughout the chapter, is not to lose sight of the amazing thing that's just happened. This is dense and it's rich, but it's not an abstract discussion about the work of the Son. It flows from the particular work that Jesus has just done, healing the invalids. They have just seen this amazing work of love from Jesus, but verse 23, they have not honored him for that. 
In fact, quite the opposite. They've attacked and they've criticized. And by dishonoring the son God loves, they're actually dishonoring God himself, the God they think they're defending. Which is why this whole thing in verse 19 starts with a so. They are outraged that Jesus puts his work on the same level as God the Father's work. In their eyes, that would make him a kind of rival deity, another God. But that is not at all what Jesus' kind of equality with the Father looks like. The Son, verse 19, can do nothing of his own accord. Literally, he can do nothing from himself, as if he were some autonomous rival. There's a fromness to God the Son that doesn't just apply to Jesus, the God-man, but stretches right back into eternity. And we'll see more of that later on. But there is some sense in which his person, his sonness, is something that comes from the Father. Because we don't have three gods. We have a trinity, a triunity. The Father and Son share one perfectly harmonious will. It belongs to their one perfectly shared being. And so the Son can do only what he sees the Father doing. God the Son does nothing more than what the Father does, verse 19. And verse 20, God the Son does nothing less than what the Father does. For whatever God the Father does, the Son does likewise. And then we have this chain of verses, all beginning with that word for, explaining what he said and giving examples. The explanation is in verse 20, the grounds of it all. For the Father loves the Son. You cannot pull them apart. And he shows the Son all that he himself is doing. Now we are two verses in here, and already we're into waters so deep that with human language and human brains, it is very hard to say more. Maybe we hear this, we hear Jesus speaking, and we imagine it like a dad and his boy working together in the tool shed so that the father shows how it's done first, and then his son copies it like an apprentice. Two separate deeds that are very similar And yet we know it can't quite be like that, can it? Because John has told us already in this book that without the words, without the Son, there was nothing that was made. There's nothing the Father did or made before the Son was involved. Verse 19 lets us push that even further. Without him was not anything done that was done. Without him was not anything said that was said. Whatever the Father does, he does through his beloved Son. And so Jesus here is using words like seeing and showing to describe an eternal reality in God's being. There is a continual loving communion between Father and Son where the Father shares everything he is and has, his whole being with his son, including that one undivided will. 
And it's the direction of that sharing which makes the father the father and the son the son. The son is eternally begotten. God shares his godness, his being with him eternally. And from that ordering of relations within himself in eternity, there naturally flows a kind of ordering in God's actions, his works outside of himself in time. Everything God does, including the healing of that one desperate man sitting that day by the pool, everything God does is appointed by the Father and accomplished by the Son. Augustine compares it to the way a person writes. First, we have to form the letters in our hearts, and then we write them with our hand. But it's the same letter that the heart and the hand are writing. It's one whole work of one whole being. And so when Jesus does these extraordinary works of love in the Gospels, we're seeing the love of the Father. In fact, we're seeing the eternal love of Father, Son, and Spirit spilling out into time in an orderly way. It means that everything, everything Jesus does is completely fatherlike. There's nothing in his claim to be equal with God that these monotheistic Jews listening to Jesus need to worry about. He's showing them the Father, the Father's loving works. And it means for us that the Father is completely Jesus-like. There's nothing in God the Father or the God of the Old Testament that we should ever be ashamed of, not his views on marriage or on judgment or on any of the other things we might find worrying or embarrassing. Because if we want to know who he is, if we want to know who God is, we only need to look at what Jesus does even the cross that he faces at the end of this book is the Father's work of love spilling out onto the page, the biggest window into the Father's heart there has ever been or ever will be. That is what he's like. And so according to the end of verse 20, that one little work of love they all witnessed that day by the pool that was just a foretaste. It was a sign of two great works in particular that the Father will do through his Son. First, with that four in verse 21, that one miracle they're all arguing about right now is a sign that God the Son gives life to whoever he will. And second, with the four of verse 22, it was a sign that God the Son is judge of all the earth. Don Carson, on his, uh, his commentary on John's gospel, quotes a rabbi writing in the Jewish Talmud. And he's suggesting that God holds three keys in his hand, which he will never, ever entrust to anyone else. The key of rain, the key of the womb, and the key of the resurrection of the dead. I guess if this were a Marvel movie, they would be a bit like the Infinity Stones, wouldn't they? There are certain powers that belong to God alone. They are divine prerogatives. 
none more than the power to give life and the power to judge eternal souls. Every single decision that ultimately matters, and they are placed by God the Father into the hand of God the Son, all because he loves him with an eternal love. And he loves him, verse 23, so much that his ultimate purpose in everything is for us to honor and recognize his son for whom he is. God of God, equal in power and glory. So to look then at Jesus' works of love, the amazing things Jesus does in his world, to look at those and reject them is to reject God the Father and his work and his love. Even if, as the people sitting here that day were doing, even if we reject them in the name of monotheism, we might claim to worship the God of Abraham. Many do today, don't they? But if we don't adore his son, Jesus Christ, who he adores, then we don't adore him. In fact, we dishonor him. We're worshiping a different God. So honor Jesus because the Father loves him eternally. And then number two from verses 24 to 27, listen to Jesus. Because through his voice, the Father is speaking life today. One of the famously grating things that happens when someone close to you dies is that everyone around you loses the ability to speak normal English. So they don't say things like, I'm sorry your father died. They'll say things like, I'm sorry he passed, as if he'd taken some weird mortality exam and got a good grade, or as if he were having a bit of a nap. And until now, I've, I've always tried to be fairly forgiving of that because it is quite hard to talk about death, isn't it? But the next time I hear a Christian use that word, I think now I'm tempted to be a little more playful and give my condolences right back to them. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I know he'd be very sorry to hear that you've passed as well. Because look at verse 24. It's true, isn't it? It's true of all believers. Some of us know the exact time and date. We passed in 1955 at the Billy Graham rally in Glasgow or the Edinburgh CU meeting. Others never knew a day when they were unpassed. But either way, it is an astonishing claim that Jesus makes, isn't it? Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has passed, already done, from death to life. We were dead, but the moment Jesus spoke to us, we came to life. And so the question is, how? Well, up in verse 21, he said that the Father raises the dead. It was his prerogative. But in the same way, the Son gives life to whoever he will. One single, perfectly harmonious will. And so what do we see here in verse 24? Well, it's the Son whose words people hear but it's the Father who people believe when they hear them and so receive life. Or to put it another way, God is speaking Jesus into the world 
and he's doing it right now. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Right now, God is speaking Jesus to dead people. It happens in this very room. And they are passing away backwards from death to life. Isn't that an astonishing thing to believe? Now, clearly, these aren't the dead, dead people. We'll come to them in a moment. But I've never seen one of them stand up off the mortuary table and come back to life. No, these are the living dead people. That great horde of lost humanity lying in our spiritual graves, cut off from God, estranged from that reality of life and love at the heart of the universe. But God, the Son incarnate, has broken into those rebellious lives. And everyone present, as he speaks these words, has just seen a little picture, a little foretaste of what that means. They've seen an apathetic, unbelieving man with nothing going for him, restored miraculously to health. And it's a sign, isn't it, that points to that greater spiritual reality that the hour has now come when the dead will hear his voice. If you are a Christian, you are a resurrected person. Is there more to come? Yes, there certainly is, and we'll get to that. But as much as we're worried about overplaying what it means to be a believer now in this age, there is also a danger. We underplay it, isn't there? Jesus' miracles were signs that he gives resurrection life, that it's broken into this age. If you are a Christian believer, he's given that life to you that you will always have. He's given it to you already. You were born dead, spiritually unresponsive. The doctors had called it. There was nothing that could be done for you. Nothing you could do for yourself to welcome God into your hearts. But in Jesus' love, the life of the age to come has broken in, even while this body still has some catching up to do. And the last four, the one that comes in verse 26, that tells us how he did it. As the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. God has life in an entirely different way to the way that any of us have life. He has life all of his own, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, never depleting life. Our life is not like that, is it? We are like the lights on a Christmas tree. You unplug them from the mains, and for a split second, they keep on glowing. But inevitably, every time, the light dies because they don't have it in themselves. They're dependent. And just like that, the life in us is a dependent kind of life. God warned us, didn't he? He warned mankind when he made us that the day we turned our backs on him, we would surely die. And it's exactly what happened. We were pulled from the plug, cast out from his presence. And we still glow for a little while, 
But from the moment we're born, the light is beginning to fade. We're spiritually dead. But just as God the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. It's the same wonderful mystery that we were creeping up on in verse 20. God the Father shares his whole undivided godness with God the Son. He is God of God. As God, the Son has all the Father has. It's all his own. Self-sufficient, unending life, eternally his. That's the absolute equality that we started with in verse 19. And yet, and here's the mystery, as the Son, that godness, that underpleting life is something granted to him, begotten to him by the Father. And that eternal grant of life in himself means that Jesus comes to us with life unlike any other life in creation. It's his own to give. He has been granted judgment over all things, verse 27, even over life and death. And so we were cut off, pulled out of the plug, estranged from the source of life, unforgiven, coming into judgment, verse 24. But Jesus is the great reconciler, the source of life itself. And right now, his voice is ringing out. We get to look at his works as these people have just done and the Father's love is on show. We listen to his words as we are right now and the Father is speaking life into this room, calling us back to himself to take hold of his son and be made right with him. It's why surely as Christians we long for the people we care about, the people we love to come into church, isn't it? To sit under Jesus' words, to hear his voice, because that voice is life to them and to us. So listen to Jesus. And finally, verses 28 to 29, marvel at Jesus, because he will pass the Father's verdict over every last forever. And I'll be able now to tell how many of you have lost with that fire hose of Trinitarian theology, because those of you who are still awake, I see one at the back, will be looking at my third heading and then looking at the text. And in a second or so, you'll be looking at me with a puzzled frown, because verse 28 seems to say the opposite, doesn't it? Do not marvel at this. And yet, if we've been paying attention clearly... God the Father wants us to look at the works he'll do through his son, verse 20, and marvel at Jesus. So the question then is, what does the this refer to here in verse 28? And I suspect, again, this is where we need to come up out of the weeds and remember the context of this whole paragraph. The people Jesus is speaking to are angry about one man who was healed on the Sabbath with nothing but a word. They've just seen one little picture of what he's been saying in these last few verses, that it's his voice which gives life to the living dead. 
And they're astonished. They're furious that that is what he's claiming. And so do you see what he's saying to them in 28? You ain't seen nothing yet. I'll give you something to marvel about. That same voice which healed this one spiritually dead man will ring out all over the earth, calling every man, woman, and child who ever was or is or is to come. The hour is now here, verse 25, when the living dead can hear my voice. But verse 28, an hour is still coming, do you see? When even the dead dead will hear the same, the same voice. And not just one representative man, but all who are in their tombs will rise up out of the grave to face their life giver and judge. And on that day, says Jesus, what you did with my voice will be perfectly obvious and all out in the open. If you took hold of me while you had the chance, while you're alive, if my new creation life was planted in you, then it will be demonstrable on the last day. It wasn't just a fantasy, that Christian life you lived. There will be evidence to base a judgment on. Good works that, as Jesus put it back in chapter 3, were carried out in God through his grace. Fruits of that life that the Son of God, by his sheer gracious good pleasure, called you to in this age. But those who rejected my voice, who heard the love of heaven speaking and saw all that I did, but dishonored the Son, well, they will have nothing to show. In life, they never passed from condemnation to communion. And so in death, they will rise to the resurrection of judgment and answer for their deeds. And when every last human being who ever was, from Goebbels to your granny, rises up from their grave or their scattered cloud of ashes and stands before the Lord Jesus with joy or tears in their eyes, then we'll marvel as well we should. It's important to us, isn't it, to know whose hands we're in. Even for something as trivial as a haircut, we care so much, don't we, about who's going to be doing it. We go for surgery, and who the surgeon is really matters to us. Jesus has told us here whose hands have been trusted by God the Father with the resurrection of our bodies and the eternal judgment of our souls. The reality that every single priority in our lives surely has to be ordered around. And it could not be better news because it is the one who does whatever the Father does. The voice of life and love that God in his kindness is still speaking into the world today. So the time for us then to listen and to grab hold of that voice is right now. Let me pray.
Lord Jesus Christ, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, we marvel that in your uncreated love you came down from heaven for us men and our salvation. We praise you for the grace by which you've brought so many of us already from death to life. We praise you for the grace and the patience that is still speaking into the world today, wherever your word is heard, calling us to the love of your Father and the peace of your cross. And we tremble, Lord, that one day, with every man, woman, and child, we will stand before you as judge, and your grace will be vindicated and your justice displayed. And so we pray, would each one of us respond now to the summons of your voice so that on that day we would still be found in you and known as yours to the praise and honor of the triune God of grace. Amen.